You know what the most dangerous thing in America is, right? Nigga with a library card. <laughs> This is the Most Dangerous Thing in America podcast, a show in which we read black books and they're talked about by a black author. And you can listen if you are black or not black. That is okay. All right. This week on the show, we are finishing up Black Marxism uh, by Cedric J. Robinson, Professor Cedric J. Robinson. We've already done part one and part two. So if you want to listen to those, you can find them on Spotify, iTunes, or on the SoundCloud Otherwise, we're going to just give a brief overview of the book and talk about the third part of the book, which is, I think the second part of the book is my favorite, but the third part is also good. And then we're going to just talk about some takeaways that I had. Okay, so uh, we'll try to do the overview parts quickly because ultimately you can read the book and come come away with the, the bare facts of what's happening. And Okay, so first of all, um, the book is, so let's review the premise. The premise is that uh, the black radical tradition is a better critique of capitalism than Marxism, or, as we get to in part three, Trotskyism, Stalinism, or any other ism based off of Marxism. And the reason for this, one, some of the reasons for this is because uh, the black radical tradition was organic and came to fruition outside of the ideological constructs that also produced capitalism, right? It is a separate, a separate theory that has nothing to do with the capitalist forces from from Europe. And uh, I also think an aspect of Robinson's argument, especially that's brought up in the third part, relies on the idea of the black radical tradition being a better critique as like a de facto truth, because it so happens that, um, as we'll see as we talk about part three, there have been more, uh, you might say, only examples of the black radical tradition critiquing, successfully critiquing capitalism and other revolutions that are similar to the black radical tradition and you haven't really seen a truly marxist critique of capitalism unfold in real time it has not been brought to fruition he's kind of playing the results as we say in the sports ball world he's playing the results but okay uh so that's what the overall the book is about part one of the book was just the development of marxism um coming from feudalism to capitalism and then um the, the development of that and how it led to Marxism, uh, no mention of Africa in it. Part two was a history of slave uprisings in the New World, marinage communities, and eventual revolutions. I didn't mention the Haitian, the Haitian Revolution last, last episode, but uh, that is a major factor in part two. It covers uh, marinage communities from the early, I, I think the earliest may have even been in the 15th century, like not too long after Columbus, there may have been some some Africans brought to the New World that ran away in the 15th century. But if not, the 16th century certainly had them. And uh, and so part two covers all of that. And that's what we might term the proto-black radical tradition. And we'll get into that more right now. So let's dive in. Part three. It's composed of five chapters. The first chapter is kind of an overview chapter. And then the middle three chapters are devoted to one great black radical. The first one is W.E.B. Du Bois. The second one is C.L.R. James, and the third is Richard Wright. And then the fifth chapter is a summation of the whole book, and it's very useful. So, essentially, the, the first chapter is an overview, and it's talking about what was necessary in order to come up with a black radical tradition. And 
And I would say Cedric Robinson's primary objective and the primary objective of the um, the black uh, intelligentsia was to come up with a history. It was necessary to formulate a history because there were all these historical traditions coming out of Europe and all of them obfuscated the histories of Africa, Asia, and any other place with, with people of color in them. And so the first thing that had to be done was a history had to be culled from what had been either erased, ignored, or destroyed, right? So that was the first thing. And so um, that's why W.E.B. Dubois is the first person that he that he uses because Dubois used so much of his time excavating history and doing it from a non-European perspective. And he was at odds with the historical establishment because of it. I know before I read this book, I had read about uh, Egyptology, which is always a field that interests me as it seems to be like mainly dominated at least at one time by European Egyptologists. And um, I know Dubois wrote a little bit about Egypt and I know he was attacked for his opinions. And I'm not saying that his opinions were necessarily correct, but I think that there was a fervor to the attack that had less to do with disproving anything he said and more to do with just trying to not even allow a different perspective, which is something that we are seeing up to the present day Black or white historians, you know, like Howard Zinn's book, obviously, is very famous for being maligned by certain conservative forces in America. And the 1619 Project is currently the history of uh, the history of a people of of um, of the present day. Right. Like uh, Hannah, Hannah, Hannah Jones has become the Howard Zinn of her day. That continues to be true. It continues to be true that decentralizing history continues to be something that the establishment doesn't like because that messes with the national myth. And when you mess with the national myth, it makes it difficult to cultivate the kind of people you want to cultivate. So that's the second thing that Robinson talks about in this first chapter. He talks about how the Britons and the missionaries and anybody else in the colonies, anybody else who's running the colony, but by this point, we're really talking about Britain in the 19th century. They wanted to produce black Englishmen. Uh, Robinson writes, they wanted to produce black Englishmen, Africans who seem to have assimilated Western culture. There was a problem though. uh, And that was that these missionary educated Africans became, to use his word, cheeky, quote unquote, cheeky, and demanded social equality and political freedom. And so you had from the New World, George Padmore, C.L.R. James, Eric Williams, uh, Oliver Cox, and, and many, many more. Of course, Dubois and then later Richard Wright. But so we're starting here with these guys. And this overview is talking about how these radicals who were Western educated, but Africans of African extraction, basically got a mixture of Western ideas, but black radical tradition. And those two things meshed together. And then when they confronted Marx and Engels, it morphed into its own thing, which would become the black radical tradition. So that's pretty much what this chapter is about. We've come out of the slave uprisings. We now have a intelligentsia, a black intelligentsia, and they are grappling with what it means to be on the lower tier of society. No longer slaves, but still on the lower tier of society, not the proletariat, but actually like peasants. And then you have these these intellectuals, the intelligentsia, so they're not peasants. So they're actually in the middle class, but they're then grappling with like, all right, I'm in the middle class 
maybe social, not, not social, economically I'm in the middle class, but maybe not even then, but kind of. I'm economically in the middle class, but socially I'm still connected to, for lack of a better word, the peasantry, because that's what racism has deemed black people in the 19th century. And so they're grappling with Marx and Engels who don't really do anything to consider the intersectionality of racism and imperialism and capitalism. And so they kind of have to, on the fly, come up with this idea of what best counteracts all of those things. And so the answer to that is the black radical tradition. So let's hop in and see how did they do that. We start with W.E.B. Dubois. Um, I think Robinson's main thing here, why, why he started with him, is uh, he was the first. He's kind of the guy who kicks the whole thing off, especially in America. I think it would be, I don't think it would be wrong to say that W.E.B. Dubois is the guy who starts off the tradition of black literature. He is very much a part of the middle class. He's also light-skinned, which which matters. It does matter. He didn't even know he was black, apparently, until um, he was like 10 years old or something. And so uh, something that Dubois has been criticized for within the last like five or 10 years has been his idea of the talented 10th. Tenth. And this was the idea that basically what we needed to do was have a bunch of well-to-do black folks get up to the level of the white culture, and then they would go and help take out of poverty the black culture or the black peasantry. And so that's, you know, relatively Marxian, right? It's kind of that idea. It's somewhat that idea of the proletariat uprising and who was giving the proletariat the knowledge that they should push back against the capitalist forces that were ensnaring them. That would be the, the bourgeoisie, the petty bourgeoisie. So that was the idea that W.B. Dubois had. But he eventually became disillusioned with this idea, which for which he has been criticized, by the way. That, that idea is not an idea that people like. But basically what he realized was is that the talented tenth would never do what he wanted them to do. And he he's included in that talented tenth. They would never do that. They would simply just neglect the poorest amongst them. So there would be, of course, a little bit of race solidarity. And that happened after 50 years of constant terror post-Civil War. Well, not right after that, but as the Jim Cross South and Reconstruction really got set firmly into place, that 50-year period of lynchings and terror enacted by white Southerners, there was racial solidarity amongst black people. But there's always going to be an element of the talented 10th, let's just use that phrase, the talented 10th who don't want to consider what's happening with the poorest in their racial class, let's say class and race. And so upon realizing that, he now knew that this that Marxism wasn't going to work for him. And he said, or Robinson writes of him, whatever he said and did concerning the uplift, the uplift of the working class must therefore be modified so far as Negroes are concerned by the fact that he had not studied at first hand their peculiar race problem. And this is, Dubois' uh, reaction to Marxism. He had realized that Marx and Engels, and he writes specifically about Marx, so let me not even say Engels. Uh, apparently, uh, Dubois didn't really mess too much with Engels. But basically, what he realized was they didn't consider racism when they were formulating this theory. There's a peculiar race problem in the entire Western hemisphere. Marxism is not going to work to liberate black folks, and it's not a complete liberation theory. After the Russian Revolution, this became even more apparent because he looked at the Russian Revolution and it was a revolution not enacted by the proletariat, but by peasants. It wasn't led by peasants. That 
they weren't the ideological leaders necessarily, but they were the people who helped actually overthrow the czar. All of that was very enlightening for W.E.B. Dubois. All right, so that was the beginning of everything in terms of the black, well, not the complete beginning. So we had the proto-black radical tradition happening with slave uprisings, and then you have the making of a intelligentsia, and you have uh, Dubois realizing that um, racism is a major factor in uh, capitalism, and it's an overlooked factor in Marxism. And because of that, there has to be a better tool to liberate the masses, specifically the black masses. Okay, then we go to C.L.R. James, whose life overlaps with um, Dubois, and, but he's younger. And so uh, in the book, Robinson gives us a bunch of historical context for James's life. Just very quickly, he's born in Trinidad, and he has enough class and uh, not enough class. That sounds weird. He has enough uh, economic mobility to be able to go study in England, right? So just imagine that, okay? And he's also, uh, he's a person with literature, literary aspirations, and he's a sportsman. So he's pretty middle class, pretty, pretty bougie. Him and a bunch of other black intellectuals, the guys we named earlier, Padmore, Cox, McKay, etc. They're living in England and they're experiencing the freedoms of the empire. Well, isn't this great? Here we are in England and we can rail against how we're treated out there in the colonies. But as they were railing against how they're being treated in the colonies, they realized that had they talked like this, if they were in the colonies, they wouldn't have been allowed to talk like that at all. So it was this um, freedom, of, freedom of speech that's allowed when it doesn't actually lead to anything. Yeah, do your freedom of speech thing here in um, England. Uh, I believe Robinson used the term the metropole, which uh, I really like. Nice little old school term. Do your freedom of speech thing here in the metropole. But when you're in the colonies, keep it quiet and this played out. If they actually, one of them, I can't think it was Padmore, was barred from returning to Jamaica, I believe. So it was like, oh, he's going to go back and, you know, get everybody riled up. We don't need that. So they started to realize, like, this isn't, this isn't any good. So CLR James is coming from Trinidad. He's in England. He's getting exposed to Western ideas. He's getting exposed to Marxism. He's speaking out about stuff. He's realizing, though, that, that there's a limit to how much he's allowed to speak out, that there's a cap on stuff. And then you know, he's a very staunch Marxist. He really believes in Marxism. He doesn't get into Trotskyism or Stalinism. He really likes Marxism. And um, he starts to come towards the idea of the black radical tradition obliquely. And as I'm reading the book, I'm thinking, does he even understand it at all? So Robinson writes, and he says specifically, James did not see this in parentheticals, that bourgeois culture and thought and ideology were irrelevant irrelevant to the development of revolutionary consciousness among black and other third world peoples. He didn't see it, but in this book that he wrote, he kind of wrestled around with this idea and without realizing what he was writing and without really realizing the idea that he was getting at, he was starting to see that like, okay, I'm investigating all these instances of the black radical tradition, not knowing that that's what it's called. I'm seeing all these different uprisings around the world. I'm seeing that in order for these uprisings to happen, you don't need to have a university education. You don't need to have learned about uh, what Marx and Engels theories are. You don't need anybody from the bourgeois, the bourgeoisie going to the proletariat and informing them, hey, here's why it's not good to be at the bottom of the social strata in a capitalist society. They don't need that. Um, these things can happen organically, especially among black people and third world peoples. So... That's kind of the CLR's big contribution. It's kind of a link 
from Dubois, who started out just bringing history back, giving history back to black peoples. And then you have C.L.R. James, who is, you know, wrestling with Marxism and, you know, what he doesn't know yet is the black radical tradition. He's wrestling with these two ideas, not sure what's what or what's how okay and then you have richard wright who comes in on the scene then so we pretty much are done with clr james there like he he contributes to stuff he continues writing kind of like dubois he gets older he realizes more and more that marxism is missing this crucial element okay and then we get to richard wright who kind of much quicker not kind of much much more quickly than the last the other two very quickly realizes this isn't working and i think robinson would say that the reason he did, he realized that there was a flaw in Marxism was because he was actually from the lower class and, and not like the proletariat lower class, but the peasantry. He was from that. He grew up, uh, I think as a sharecropper, but I'm not sure. But okay. So Robinson writes about Richard Wright. His journey took him from Marxism and through existentialism and finally to black nationalism, a journey that could be retraced biographically from his membership in the American Communist Party in the early 1930s to his death in France in 1960. And between there, uh, he left the Communist Party. And also we should say that the book gives an extensive review of black nationalism, of Marcus Garvey, of um, the UNIA, which was a pan-Africanist movement. And it really wants to make clear that these things were important movements. They weren't just like, um, I think sometimes they're regarded as like, these little off to the side things and Garvey gets a lot of credit for his back to the Africa, back to Africa movement, not credit, but at least a lot of the attention for that back to Africa movement. And it makes it feel more like a movement led by an ideologue. And that's not really what it was. It was a real actual movement about creating a black consciousness, an international universal black consciousness, which stands in favorable contrast to the first, second, third, fourth internationals, which uh, are based off of Marxian or Trotskyan thought. Yeah, so anyway, Richard Wright, moving through this journey much quicker than the other two, coming from a different place than the other two, not being a middle-class uh, person, never being able to pass for white even early on, was always black, was always poor. Uh, he comes to Marxism and is uh, a fervent adapter of it, likes it, thinks it's good, but then realizes as he's working through it that... Um, it's not, there's nothing in it for black people. Marxism is serving, it, it, in fact, it seemed to him that black people were meant to serve Marxism and Marxism, Marxism was not meant to serve black people. And uh, Robinson goes through a whole part about how, I believe it was Lenin, this was pre-Richard Wright, Lenin supported black people getting involved in Marxism in America because he thought these are the poorest people there so they'll help drive it forward. And as we often see in America, when Americans want something driven forward, they'll turn to black people to help drive it forward because they know, oh, they'll support this. They're getting screwed over anyway, so they'll hop on this thing. Perhaps in this last election, you could see that very thing, right? A large portion of the country, non-black portion of the country, did not like the 45th president. And they thought, Jesus, we got to get this guy out of here at any cost possible. Let's pay attention to helping black people get to vote. And once he's voted in the candidate that they like... How much more attention are they paying now? That's kind of Richard Wright's point. Uh, this Marxism thing sounds cool, but it seems like you just want to liberate a bunch of people who are a social class above black folks. Well, what about black folks? What are you going to do for black folks? 
So Richard Wright became disillusioned. All right. So that's pretty much the third part of the book. It's a lot of stuff. What all of this left me wondering was, what is the black radical tradition? I don't know if you were left wondering that after reading the book or listening to these podcasts, but I was left wondering, what is the black radical tradition? I was a bit confused by it because I thought, okay, you've told me how capitalism started and how Marxism sprung from it. You've told me about marinage and slave uprisings, and you've explained to me the formation of an intelligentsia, as well as three huge figures of black intellectualism and 20th century, 20th century intellectualism overall. All right. But now are there tenets for this thing? Well, I want to just point out that Robinson writes in the summation, when he starts his summation, he says, this work was conceived as primarily a theoretical discourse. This may come as a bit of a surprise to some readers because for the most part, I purposely eschewed theoretical language. Yes, Mr. Robinson, I was surprised. And that's why I think as I was reading the book, I was thinking, when am I going to get like a, an actual like um, rundown of exactly what the black radical tradition is? I wanted it to kind of be like, um, well, like something like Marxism, you know, like this is how this is going to happen. But that's not really what he was trying to do. What he was more trying to do is point out that this black radical tradition has been happening without um, people even being conscious of the tradition. So then he's just laying the, he's just, he's just showing you the history, which had been destroyed of this radical tradition. And then from there, this book was what, written in 1983? From there, we can start to say, all right, here you go. Here's the tradition, carry it on, okay? So in the summation, he goes through and he says, he talks about how the the marinage and the uprisings were the raw material of the black radical tradition. By the 18th century, there were still rebellions going on. And uh, these rebellions kept, they preserved African people and the nurture, and they nurtured the black radical tradition. Then he talks about in the new world, 19th into the 20th century, first half of the 20th century, basically all of these crises of monopoly capitalism happened and the best responses were from the black radical tradition or from peasantry around the world, right? So that's reinforcing again this idea. And then from there, the next step in this tradition is black radicals going over Western ideas, Western critiques of capitalism and being like, nope, not good enough, does not include us. And finally, we get to Richard Wright, who, and this is Robinson talking now, from the measured discourse of a black culture, he illustrated the limits of a socialist movement that persisted in too many abstractions, too far removed, and was prey to the arrogance of racial paternalism. So for him, Wright brings all of these things together. And then from there, Robinson starts listing off African revolutionaries who were alive at the time. And who were carrying on the tradition. He mentioned some other non-African revolutionaries as well. I know for sure he mentioned Patrice Lumumba. Julius Nairi. My man from Ghana. I'm going to get his name wrong. His first name is Kwame. I'm not even going to try to pronounce his last name. I'm sorry. Angela Davis from America. I know he mentioned. So he goes through and he starts listing all these people who are carrying the tradition on. And he says. The evolution of black radicalism has occurred while it has not been conscious of itself as a tradition. So that kind of answered my question for me of. Am I going to get the tenets of black radical 
tradition. I'm not. What I'm going to get instead is the history, the history of the black radical tradition. And that history is important because, just like Marxism is a historical, philosophical theory, the BRT, I'm tired of saying black radical tradition, the BRT is also a historical theory. So yeah. Okay, and then, okay, very quickly, this was the last part of the book, and it says, But a civilization maddened, maddened by its own perverse assumptions and contra contradictions is loose in the world. So that's what he's, he's talking about, our modern world is already coming apart at the seams. A black radical tradition formed in opposition to that civilization and conscious of itself is one part of the solution. So I thought that was interesting. He ends the book with that. There's a couple more sentences, but just the basic idea is that We've been seeing, I would say, for at least 90 years now, uh, the problems with capitalism. A lot of people refer to current modern-day capitalism as late-stage capitalism. And he's offering this the BRT as one critique of it and one part of the solution. I thought that was interesting. And the most theoretical he had sounded in the entire book. So anyway, uh, am I convinced? Mm, yeah, I would say so. I mean, it's tough to be convinced with something that's a theory, with something that's so scholarly. To say I'm 100% convinced is difficult, but I don't see how you couldn't look at um, the BRT and then also other revolutions that were enacted by, you know, non-proletariat classes and not say like, right, okay, that makes sense. You don't need to read Das Kapital in order to understand that uh, you shouldn't be subjugated. So I'm, I'm at least on board for that part. That makes sense because it's history. I, well, and, and I mean, if I read a 500 page book that refuted all of Robinson's ideas, would I be just as easily persuaded? I don't think so. I think that what Robinson has done here in these in this uh, 500 page book is confirm something that I kind of have always thought. And yeah, I think growing up black, especially growing up black in the new world, but also in Africa, you from the get go are kind of always thinking about rebellion liberation how to how to go against the forces that are against you so without any knowledge of marx i remember being exposed to what what would really just be protest music of all kinds of different forms as a kid because that's what hip-hop is it's what reggae is that's what the blues are especially according to richard wright and so yeah i think every black person probably suspects a lot of what robinson's written here and I think what Robinson did was just take that suspicion of like, wow, this seems to be something that you just kind of grow up with when you're black and go through and provide a ton of historical detail for why that suspicion is very possibly true. Going to finish with two notes. First one is uh, the theoretical thing. We already covered that. So there are two other things that I just want to talk about very briefly. Uh, the other writing note, which was the uh, Cedric Robinson's pet word, he must have used it a hundred times in this book, is concomitant. He used the word concomitant so much that I was, I was like, does it mean something more than what I think it means? Like, surely it can't be, <laughs> it must be more versatile to be using it so much. Well, I just searched the book, and it says there's only 21 results. But that seems like a lot for that word, does it not? Like, it's not a word that means so much. You know, like, all right, if I if I type in Marxism, I'm sure, like, we're going to get, you know, way more results than that. But um, I don't know. Like, it's not, 
it's not a word that does so much that you that you feel like it would use he would use it that much. But twenty one times in a five hundred page book for the word concomitant, I don't know. It seems like a lot to me. Uh, Marxism has two hundred and twenty two, but I mean that's the title of the book, isn't it? So it's a bit different. Uh, the other thing is that there is a lot. I mean, this thing really goes through a lot of a uh, history. Tons of history goes through a lot of different types of black culture because there's. There's not just one black culture, although there's a unifying thread through all of it. One thing I will say is that references to mulattoes and colorism, there's a lot of them. But obviously the way that Robinson is doing it is um is by referring to... It's a matter-of-fact uh, referral, you know? It's just... The matter-of-fact is that, you know, for instance, Dubois was um, light-skinned and uh, for that reason was treated a certain way. It's a matter-of-fact referral in that way. And it's a matter-of-fact referral that in... Certain places in the New World, mulattoes were treated better. It's a matter-of-fact referral. Maybe I'm sensitive as a mulatto reading this going like, oh, I'm light-skinned, dang, you know. Um, hope he, I hope Robinson would like me, but it's not like that. It's not a judgment that he's doing. He's just referencing. Maybe instead of light-skinned or mulatto, I should just use the term like sunscreen negro. Would that work? You know, like light enough that you still got to wear sunscreen? Uh, I, oh, one last quote, and then we're going to end here. He's talking about a place where, uh, earlier where I was talking about the idea that England wanted to raise, like, English black men. Here are some terms that people apparently like. So I threw my own just into the hat right now, uh, a sunscreen Negro. Uh, we got uh, Negro Saxon. That was from William Ferris. We have the Boston mulatto elite, <laughs> who <laughs> Robinson's words, who appropriated Afro-American. And William C. Nell used black Saxons. For my for my for my point of view, I'm good with just black. I, I like the term black. I don't like African American. Don't like Negro Saxon for sure. Don't like black sax. I guess I don't dislike African American, but um, I'm good with just black. You know. So and, and, and apparently Robinson is too. Name of the book is Black Marxism, not African American Marxism. So, all right. There it is, my fellow Negro Saxons. We are finished with. Black Marxism by Cedric J. Robinson. It was a lot of work, a lot of reading. The kind of thing that you read and you're like, okay, now I need to go read 20 other books. I got a Chester Himes book I want to read out of this. I got a book by C.L.R. James that's on cricket that I want to read out of this. Um, so many different pieces of history, books on history written by black authors that um, you know we never get to read. And a last note on history real quick is that our historical education in general, the macro version of it, I was talking about that this week with my uh, fellow teacher friends, the macro education is really bad. And this is kind of what Robinson was talking about. You always know what was happening in Europe or you know the through line of how we get to Europe, right? You know, the Egyptian cultures, the Mesopotamia uh, or the Mediterranean cultures and then the Greeks and then the Romans. And then, oh, that's how we get democracy that's how it got to your what's happening in the world during that time that should be the more macro focus of like hey while this was going on here something else was going on over there and there are a lot of countries in the world and you can't cover all of them but you know our my example i was using this week for instance was like the poet li bai in china predates chaucer by it's like 600 years it just seems like something we ought to know we ought to know that there were there were robust literary traditions in other places in the world while people in England were still speaking in like pigeon backwards English that they had borrowed from old French. So, um, yeah, anyway. Okay. So, uh, we're done with Robinson. 
next week or like two weeks from now or maybe sooner gonna post a review of punch me up to the gods by brian broom and i also got a physical or a uh, i also i also got a review of that in litro magazine so that'll be out soon so look out for that and then yeah until then stay safe stay black and keep reading